Aileen Rupp, Mo Farah, uh, Matt Sanchowitz, um, who have all won gold medals or silver medals at the Olympics. And uh, then there was the Bowerman Track Club, which has Evan Yeager and a few other main people. And the two people, the two groups don't talk to each other. So I, I was there running, and I thought it was an easy run. And I'm like, what is going on here? And I looked down at my watch, and it was 5.40. And I was like, this is an easy run. What the hell is going on here? We were doing a, there was a track session that they were doing. Actually, it wasn't a track session. It was a session, but it wasn't on the track. So before their warm-up, they were playing heads and bodies. <laughs> <laughs> so this is like Mo Farah, Galen Rupp, and Matt Central. So they were all playing. The, the four of us were playing heads and bodies. And you just kind of forget that you're kicking a ball at Mo. Or like it's, it was just, you just forget about it. That, my friend, was Evan Scully. And this is the Inspirational Runners Podcast. Hi everyone, hope you're having a good week. My name is Robbie Marsh, I'm your host, so welcome to the podcast. We have a very informative episode this week from Evan Scully, who is absolutely remarkable. Diagnosed with cystic fibrosis at an early age, is a strength and conditioning coach on the top flight, working with over 100 Olympians, including the likes of Mo Farah, Elliot Kipchoge and Haley Gabrielassi. Some of the biggest names in our sport. In this episode, we ask the question, why try and make sport fair if you have a genetic advantage? We creep around the world of illegal enhancements and the world of athletics, and we learn what it's like to live with the most common genetic and life-shortening disease, cystic fibrosis. Before we start, this episode is sponsored by XL Sports and the Seven System Mountain Marathon. There are two races. The first is a 26km Sky Challenge with 2,100 metres, which is held on the 21st of July, Saturday and a 50k option the following day on the 28th which has a challenge in 4,000 meters. It's an epic race not to be missed so why not throw in your hat and I'll see you there. It really is a great pleasure to introduce Evan Scully. At what level does altitude start to affect you? So 5,577 is 1,700 and I probably notice it at 1,700. How does it affect you? It, 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 do you ever do a session and you just can't go any faster mm. but you're out of breath that's pretty much what it's like um, but energy sort of sap in that way or not energy it's just that you can't just get you can't get enough oxygen yeah anything. okay uh, but the longer you're there the easier it gets does it matter the longer you're there obviously the more you're climatizing you need about you need about a month yeah. A minimum a month for you to uh, acclimatize and adapt, and then come back down to get the benefits of it. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, otherwise it's kind of just like you're not really getting the benefit out of it. A little small injection rather than a, a good step improvement. Yeah. Um, but what would that feel like coming down? So if you're up in altitude there for a month, have you you've been there for a month? Have you? Uh, I've been there for three months at a time. So like, I can. Imagine it being like, I suppose, if you took pure oxygen now, you get a little bit of a high off it. Is yeah. there sort of that sense when you come back down? There's a lot more oxygen. In. Do you ever go on a run and you could just you could just keep going? It's yeah, effortless. That's kind of what it's like. <laughs> it's it's unbelievable. You're looking at your camera going, how am I doing this pace? And then 
once the third day is over, you just feel like that. It's like you're just burnt out. But it, so one of the runs I went on, um, it was two thousand. We started at two thousand six hundred meters, and then went up to three thousand two hundred. So this is, it was Ethiopia in uh, Addis Ababa, and then we went up to Mount Ntozo. And it was with uh, it was with Heidi Gabriel Slassy. And it was it was myself and himself, just the two of us. And uh, I dislocated my ankle on that run. No way. He kept on telling me, run behind me, run behind me. And I was uh, like 10 metres behind him. And I was like, what? And I just thought it's because he's hiding. He was like, run behind me. <laughs> so what he was telling me is that there's water holes. And I have to, you have to see, if I was like right beside him or right behind him, I wouldn't be able to see them. And when I went into one of the water holes, I was, my ankle, I was like, feels a bit sore. And he puts it back into place. And I was like, Jesus. So then we kept on running to the top of Mount Toto. And we came back down. And I was like, my ankle doesn't feel that good. So I t- took my shoe off and it was just huge. Jesus. And I was like, I think I did damage to this. And he was like, okay, we'll bring you to someone. And I was like, okay. We went to this witch doctor. Yeah. He, he just kept shouting at me. And he was like, relax, relax. He was shouting in America is what they speak. I was like, what is he on about? I can't relax. And he just goes. And, I was like, and then he gets me on a treadmill and starts increasing the pace. And I could run that day. That's mad. It was no. crazy. How did you end up running with him then? I lived with him for a while. That's class. In, in his house. Well, it's not a house. It's a mansion. <laughs> <laughs> he has a stuffed leopard in his hall. Like an actual Jesus. leopard just stuffed. I thought it was real. I walked in. He is like, amazing, like, isn't he? phenomenal because like. yeah. somebody that I overpronated really badly when I started running and I didn't really know much about sort of strength conditioning or finding out what was the cause I went straight to orthotics that was the guidance I got mm. and then I seen a video of him once and he's one of the biggest overpronators you'd ever see is this when he was barefoot and his toe was just like bouncing there's a brilliant it. video of him like and just because his feet are right out yeah aren't they yeah and because people over like that can get a lot of sort of injuries, but he sort of avoids that. Like mm. probably because he gets treatment every every day, yeah. every second day. That's a big difference between the elites, isn't it? Really, than mm. these guys that are pounding themselves. I I've got quite a few friends that run ninety hundred miles a week. Um, but the elites are really getting that sort of recovery and good condition, and maybe yeah. not doing a job sort of. No, they're not. 11 hours a day, like, but... I think one of the main things is, as well, that they don't actually... Like, a full-time athlete here would be like, oh, yeah, I'll I'll meet my friends in the coffee shop for three or four hours. (laughs) Where Kenyans have a great ability to just do nothing until they have to run again. So they'd look at a wall. Well, they don't really look at a wall, but they'll just be happy doing nothing and drinking tea and then get ready for another run that day. Where we just can't do that. We need to be occupied all the time. Yeah. We need to keep busy. Is it just ingrained in their culture? I've read the book um, Running with the Kenyans. Oh you yeah, there's a fellow down in Dunshotland, and his, the fellow who wrote that book, his uncle lives in Dunshotland. Jeez. Yeah, I don't, I haven't read the book though. Good book though. Is brother Colin mentioned in it? I'm not sure. It's been a while since I read it. Oh, okay. But it was very much talking about that. You know. It's, all, it's just a lifestyle for them, you know, they're running and they're, 
they're resting about the place and then yeah. later on they're going out with the guys and they're going for like another 20 mile run like and it means so much to them obviously this is a way out for them as well you know they can it's make a, a huge way out and it's i read i found this pie chart and it says why kenyans run and it was i think it was 92 percent of them run for economical reasons and when i was there and i was just going out on the run they were like are you training for anything and i went no not really just keeping fit yeah. why <laughs> to keep fit but like you're wasting energy <laughs> i was like what <laughs> so yeah they just don't understand why people mm. run marathons for fun and you, yeah and you, like you talk about your why you know and how well that pulls you through like yeah. you know if you can if your why is strong enough then the pain that you're going to go through mm. you know that will carry you through but them guys really do have a strong why like because oh, the background that they come from you know it's, it's the alternative is being a poor farmer scraping mm. by and it is Beijing 2015 World Championships in the marathon the three Kenyans dropped out and I went ah oh, here what's going on here there's something dodgy here and I was treating the Kenyans at, at that World Championships as well so I went in I went down to the room and I was like why did you all drop out like it was too hard and I went it's the World Championships of course it's going to be too hard I'm like no like the win is only 60,000. And I went, yeah, it's pretty good. And yeah, but my appearance being in New York a few weeks later is 100,000. And I was like, oh my God. And it was at that stage that I was like, world championships or Olympics don't mean as much to them mm. than what it would to us. Because they're doing it for money. It's and a different pride. Yeah. Like we could, we could work anywhere in Ireland and still earn more than the average person in Kenya. So, but the Kenyan athletes earn a lot more than Irish athletes. Yeah, it's crazy, like, isn't it? Yeah, and I see even down to the drugs, the drugs in the <coughs> poorer parts of the world. I wouldn't have had this idea until I went there. That, of course, I, I'd probably take it as well if I was them because it's a mm-hmm. way out. It's a way out of poverty. Yeah, and you can look after your whole family. It it's not it's not a real reason to do it, but. It's understandable. It's a different mindset. At all. Mm. You're, it's talking about survival, really, isn't it? Yeah. More so than anything yeah. else. Like, like, we wouldn't see it that way coming from Coming from a privileged country, area, like, yeah. yeah. And that's when I came to the conclusion that sport is a, is a privilege rather than, I don't know, It's it's you're privileged to be able to go out and run and waste energy on running. Yeah. Or they, they have to conserve energy to do other stuff to make money. Well, we have too much energy. Yeah. So we just waste it on running. <laughs> so how did, how did you get into that then like you're talking of some of the best runners in the world really like the best runners in the world you've talked about already so how did that sort of what was Aspar um that's a big question <laughs> it's, a, it's a question I don't really have a good answer for I suppose I, I would have I suppose grafted and grinded and tried to work with everybody and anybody I could. Um, and if that meant working for free, like let's say to, to entice people, because mm-hmm. why would you go to somebody? If, if I, let's say if I was talking to you and I was like, oh yeah, come in to me. Well, why are you coming in to me? You have to have a reason to come in to me. And uh, yeah, I suppose it's building your resume or your CV mm-hmm. that's saying, right, this is who I've worked with. And then you go to other people and like, oh yeah, I've worked with this and, that and they'll bring you along I 
I suppose. Yeah. So, um, I think Eamon Coughlin has, I think he has a lot to play, a, a huge part of it. Uh, so he would have coached me and I was treating him as well. And I, I can't remember much about this because in, it was 2012, November 2012, I had a seizure around the run. And I, I can remember I was running with John Eamon's son and Paul Robinson and another uh, David Fitzmaurice. I, I did a race the day beforehand and won it. It was the November 10K. Okay. So we were going out on an easy 90 minute run, just getting it done. It wasn't, it was just kind of having a chat and going on the run. And I got, do you know the Phoenix Park well? Yeah. So do you know the hole in the wall? Yeah. So I, that's my last memory being there. But I ran from there over to, do you know where the marathon comes back yeah. in? Um, what's that, farm, farm, farmly? Farmly? Yeah, no. I, know, I know what you're talking about. Is it a gate there? Or? Yeah. Um, so somewhere in around that space, I had a seizure. So I, I ran nearly two miles around the perimeter to that part. And the three lads ran ahead. And John goes, oh, there's something wrong with Evan. We're not going fast enough. He shouldn't be dropping off. So he ran back to me and he said I was running I was running towards him but diagonally. Jeez. And he I got he got to me and then I just dropped to the floor and started shaking. So he was he was on his own and he was like, What'll I do? And it was only for the New York Marathon that year was cancelled because of the really bad yeah. weather. And you could if you ran a marathon in the November they post you out the medal. Yeah, that's right. So that day was the day in the Phoenix Park that everybody was doing the run. So the, there was ambulance, St. John's ambulance and everything there. That's mental. It just, it just happened to be. <laughs> so I, yeah, I just, I can't remember and I ended up in Blanche Hospital. Had that ever happened to you before? It happened to me when I was about 13, but um, we thought it was, we thought it was like a virus or something. Mm. I, I ran the All-Irelands and I think, I think it was top 10 that year. And I just, I was walking around doing Christmas shopping in December and I, I had a t-shirt on. I was sweating. I was absolutely roasting and I ended up, I don't know what hospital I ended up in, but um, I was with my mum and my sister that day. I was in Jervis Street Shopping Centre and I was just like walking around. That I can remember just looking up in the, at the ceiling. And uh, it happened that day, but they didn't know why, so we just thought it was maybe a little virus mm. or something. Um, so up until 2012, nothing happened, and then all of a sudden out in the run, hit the deck. So November 2012, and then again Christmas Day 2012, and I ended up in hospital again. So somewhere in between that space, I was emailing Alberto Salazar. I don't, I can't remember. What, I can't remember what I was, what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> so <coughs> it was to go over to the Oregon Project and... I'm, I'm not very sure what I was saying. That's class, but it worked. <laughs> it did, and this is where Eamon comes into it, because Eamon would have raced with Alberto, and they would have known each other, so he kind of said, yeah, well, I can kind of vouch for him. So, yeah, that was, when was it, February? I think it was February 2013, I was over with the Oregon Project then. So talk to me a little bit about that. That sounds awesome, like, what an experience, opportunity. Yeah. Oh, it was invaluable. Mm. Um, I think, I, 
what's what's your interpretation of Alberto? Um, my perspective on sport is I love sport. I love inspirational people. I believe everybody, first and foremost. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I don't have any doubt. I want to believe yeah. that one athletes are um, breaking world records. Or yeah, I want to believe it. Yeah. Like I was one of these naive people in Lance Armstrong. Right to that moment that he said it, I was <laughs> believing him. And whether it's right or wrong, it's not that I'm being naive. I just, deep down inside, I want to believe it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Because you know how fantastic people can be. Yeah. So I just don't judge any of them, to be honest, until that moment where people have, um, if somebody has been found taking drugs or anything like that, mm. then it's like... Innocent okay. to a proven guilty or not. Yeah, it really is that. Like, you know what I mean? I don't, and I hate it when somebody does extremely well in sport. And it's just like, they're definitely on drugs. Definitely on drugs. I've turned into one of those. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> for me, and I can understand why, though, you know, the more, it's only because I'm on the peripheral of, peripheral of it, and I don't really go into it. And it's like the time with Lance Armstrong, I talked about it, because everyone knows about that, like, um, everybody was on drugs. Mm. Do you know, they were all doing it, like, and when you look at some of the performances that we've seen in athletics, like, you're just like, How? How is that even physically possible? You know, because you're looking at it in the, the context. Yeah. Um, so I try not to go into that too much because I like being inspired. Just enjoy it for what it is. Enjoy it for what it is, is right. Like, without trying to get too skeptical over it. Like, which is okay if you stay on the peripheral, but the closer you get into that, mm. then the harder that becomes, I think. I think football, soccer uh, can teach us a bit about that because you look at a football game. Like, I can watch a football game and I don't question whether the footballer's on anything or not. But as soon as I see a race and I automatically go, yeah, they're on something. No matter what it is, cycling, even swimming, but for football, soccer, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because it's more of an entertainment rather than a sport. Yeah. I, I'm not I don't know if it's because it's a team sport where you're not yeah. really individually picking that person out. Possibly, yeah. And like athletics and swimming, you get some huge like improvements between like four months later you see somebody having a significant improvement and you're like it's not physically possible yeah you know and all of a sudden they're beating there's, there's some woman there um, a few months ago i remember that had happened like and she'd won like a half marathon or something but they showed her times from last year and it's just physically impossible but she hadn't been yeah uh so I, th I think it's Jipkoskoy, she was the girl who broke the world record. Yeah, Okay, exactly. so she's from a town called Kepsabet in Kenya. and It's the size of Dunshockland, it's tiny. <laughs> Four pharmacies got closed down for selling EPO. Jeez. Like, that's unreal. So and, th and that's what I mean when I say I'm on the peripheral. When you're there in the face of that and you can see that, Yeah. It's you're the opposite then. <laughs> Guilty till innocent. Yeah, true. true. <laughs> So I think when I was going over to Alberto, I thought, oh my God, this is going, he's like, everybody talked about how he puts fear into everybody or he's very like, I don't know, his looks could like just cut through you because he's so, I don't know, scary. But you're like, he collected me from the airport, like he, he looked after me, he was collecting me to go training, he dropped me off, he did everything. I was like, what is everybody on about? This guy's really nice. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I always get asked then, oh, no, did you see anything? And I didn't. 
And that's that's the honest truth. I didn't see anything. Anybody who I worked with, I didn't see anything at all. Even people who I didn't work with, I, did, I still didn't see. You, mm. Like you're not going to, you're not going to go to the track and put EPO in. You're not going to do that. You'll do it in your toilet or in your bedroom or something or wherever your choice of room is. But you're not going to do it when there's people around. Yeah. So I didn't see anything. But just telltale signs of. In. Well, we know what happens, like, yeah. know, there's no doubt there's about, there's no doubt about yeah. that, like, you know, mm. so, and, like, if you think about it and how the way cycling has been exposed, athletics around that time, like, this, the 90s and everything, yeah, do you know what I mean, how people can't, can't compete unless they're doing something in some sort of level, do you know what I mean, I, I just don't think that it was as exposed as much, but, like, deep down, you know, it, it was there, you know, in strength, really. So there's a question when people people question El Garouge all the time. So he broke the world record before EPO was on the ban list. And people think El Garouge is on the ban list or is on EPO or whatever he's on. So just for argumentative sake, let's say he was on EPO, but it wasn't on the ban list. Mm. So did he do anything wrong? Exactly. <laughs> well, ethically, yeah, but I suppose legally he didn't if he was on any because <laughs> it's where you draw the line with that as well isn't it because like a lot of the um, doctors are trying to work out how to get you in the best performance even with enhancements mm. that are legal yeah like iron yeah if you a lot of athletes have iron but it's or iron deficiency but it's a pseudo iron deficiency or pseudo anemia <laughs> but if you stop running your iron levels are going to go back up again yeah. so like you really don't have to take anything you just have to stop running but because it's not on the ban list or it's not frowned upon you can take iron and continue to run so yeah well, we like had this conversation funny enough this morning and we're, we're talking about footballers um, you know like like where do you draw a line like footballers going on the drip to recover after matches and things mm. like that is that deemed cheating or is it not cheating it's, like, it's in not athletics it's not allowed anymore yeah so so you can only you can only do 50 mils in a six hour period of something that's not on the ban list so if it's <laughs> uh, if it's hypertonic saline or uh, like sugar water and you're using an IV to recover you can still only put 50 mils in a six hour period which it's not going to do anything we, we came up to the conclusion just let everybody do what they want to do then it's a fair game <laughs> well I think I think uh, with the whole Castor Semenya thing, you know, the, the South African athlete the, in the 800 metres where the IAAF now are bringing in um, uh, to, to try reduce her natural testosterone. So she produces more testosterone than uh, yeah. everybody else in a race. So uh, she, she wasn't allowed race until she brought her natural levels of testosterone down by hormone replacement therapy. Now this was brought to the court of arbitration and they said this is unethical. You're making her take something to reduce her natural levels. Yeah, that's ridiculous. So she was brought back in, she was able to race. And everybody, like there was a case, she had to do a, a sex test to see if she was a male or a female. Um, and then it's coming back in. That that's, that's pretty hard on the athlete, isn't it? When she came back, she was, she was, she was running crap. She wasn't doing anything. 
Because imagine if you're a woman, you're like, oh, you, well, you're actually a man. Like, people are saying you're a man. And there was athletes that she was racing against that was saying it as well. And one of them was actually got caught on testosterone, which is funny. She a Russian girl. She got caught afterwards saying, uh, what is this? That's what she called. She said to Castor, what, what is this? She said it to, to, on an interview. So <laughs> that's, it's kind of, it's kind of weird. Like you're naturally gifted by producing more testosterone which is great for sport, but for, on a personal level, can she have kids? I don't know. So now she still has to take hormone, hormone replacement therapy to bring her testosterone levels down. But then what if someone has a higher iron level, that an iron carries oxygen? Should, they, should we bring that down as well? Yeah, because you can't get everybody to the same point, the no. same starting point. No. I wrote an article on it, and it was, the title was "Sports Isn't Fair," so why try and make it fair? Mm, so like, very good. I'm never going to be a good basketball player because I'm five foot four or something like that. I'm never going to be a good basketball player. Well, maybe I might love basketball. So then you're pretty tall. Should should I chop? Should you play on your knees? <laughs> Just because I I'm not good at it. Like, I think. And I said this in the article, I was born genetically worse because I have cystic fibrosis. People are born genetically better for sports. Mm. So, I think... So there never will be a balance in sport, no matter what they do. No. What do you think about the pressure on the athletes then? Because when you look at Russia... Mm. Is this with the, uh, the documentary, Icarus? Yeah. Um, I think there's a, it, there's a huge romance behind winning an Olympic medal um, and I, there was a there was a book I was reading I can't remember the name of the book now yeah I do uh, Ronda Rousey she was a UFC champion um, she was like she got a bronze medal in the Olympics for judo so she had so much pressure by her mom and herself that she has to be she has to get the Olympic gold medal. She came third and she looked at the girl who had the gold medal and she goes, Her her life must be great, she has the gold medal, everything around mm. her must be brilliant. A few months later after that Olympics she killed herself. The the girl who won the gold. So there's a huge romance behind that where like she, well she's not she wasn't happy. She, she got the gold medal yeah. and she still killed herself so um, I think with that Icarus documentary painted Russia as the bad guy because there's always the good guy which is America and the bad guy is always Russia and I think it just zoned in on Russia being the bad guy again the scapegoat and I, I actually don't really like the documentary because the person was taking drugs to see how far he'd get and then all of a sudden he starts talking to the number one person to how to take drug and now he's wa- he's on the wanted list it, that, it just didn't add up so I came back from East, no, Kenya around the time that was released and what was going on in Kenya I was just like well, why are they just targeting Russia why Kenya are on their fourth chance now to try clean them, the, the government up or the, the um, athletics federation and they still haven't and that's since 2016. Mm. So what are, what are, how come Kenya are getting 
the okay to go ahead and, and compete where Russia still can't compete it's just politics though isn't it yeah politics and I, I actually well like let's say if you took Kenya out of the uh, world championships or Olympics I suppose who would be winning then <laughs> I, don't, I don't know I just think I just think it was zoned in on Russia too much rather than mm-hmm. everyone else that is doing the same thing who else have you worked with then? You've talked about some of the most famous runners there in the world, really, like so. Um, it's been a bit, I think it's 34 Olympic medalists and over 100 Olympians. Wow. So I suppose uh, I, I was looking at the top 10 fastest people in the 1500 and I've worked with the six of those top 10 fastest. Which, like do you find yourself then like your experience you must be learning quite a lot like working with those guys yeah and uh, do, you, do, you ever, do you know David McCarty no I'm not sure either. he's from Waterford um, remember the, the under 23 team who won the European cross country he was on that team and he, he's a 355 miler Jeez. indoors as well Um. I think he has a an under twenty three individual medal on in the five thousand on track. But uh, he texted me the other day and uh, there was an article that I was mentioned in about how fifteen hundred meter people train. Uh, and he he replied, How did how do they get away with just doing anaerobic work? If I went to a race and just did anaerobic work, I would f- I wouldn't I'd feel like I'm not fit enough. How did they not do tempos or whatever? Um, so I text back saying uh, that's the Irish mentality coming out in you because <laughs> we feel like if we get to 100 miles a week then we'll get faster Yeah. but like and it, this is one of the articles I, uh, I posted about 1500 metre train in Ireland and I used John Travers and Kieran McGean as an example and I wasn't targeting at them it was just because uh, John Travers came last in the European indoors a few years ago and Kira dropped out. Now Kira's Kira's reason was personal, her granny died and everything like that. But John just came last. And I looked at it and I was like, why why is he coming last? I wonder what his PB is in comparison to the top mm-hmm. three. So the guy who won, Lewandowski won. And John had a uh, John's PB was nearly a second faster than the fellow who won. And he was four seconds faster than the fellow who came second. Jeez. So how is he coming last? That, that doesn't make sense. So then I looked at his 800 metre PB in comparison to their 800 metre PB. Now the fellow who came second, he's from Sweden. He was four seconds faster than John over 800. And Lewandowski was, I think it was seven or eight seconds faster than him over 800 metres. So if you look at a 1500 metre championship race, it's not a 1500 metre race it's maybe 700 because they go out really slow really yeah. slow and all of a sudden it's go 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 and when that when that break happens everybody who doesn't have raw speed can't go with it because they don't have that speed to, to go at that yeah. level so if you break down the world record for the 1500 meters i think it's i think it works out to be something like 12.3 seconds every 100 meters so if you can't hit 12.3 seconds in one 100 metres, how are you going to get to that level for mm. three and three quarter laps? 
And you can do that up into the marathon. If you want to break three hours for the marathon, you have to run a 6.53 marathon, or a 6.53 mile. But if you can put a few of those back to back, how are you going to do that for 26 miles? And you can't just go out and do 100 miles that week yeah. at a slow pace and then think, I can break three hours now. You have to, and this is what Alberto told me as well, you have to, or taught me, you have to, if, if you can do 12 seconds for 100 metres, it's going to be easier for you to do 225 seconds. It's going to be easier for you to do 455 seconds and keep on working up like that rather than miles and then all of a sudden you're going to get faster somehow. So we, we train completely wrong for the distance that we're trying to do. So I asked John <coughs> uh, about his training and I, I asked like what, what's his typical week's training? And they don't do any sort of raw speed, like 100s all out and a full recovery and do that again. So you're, you're working on your top end speed rather than your endurance speed or speed endurance. Um, and I have this in the article and I, I thought it, when I posted it, I was like, this might come across as if I'm targeting them. And I was like, yeah. oh. So I, I met him at a race and I was like, I hope you're not annoyed. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't trying to annoy you. He goes, no, you're completely right. We don't do 100 meter sprints. I was like, do you think you should? He said, yeah. I'm like, okay, well, what's happening in Jerry Kiernan's group that they're not doing that? And you can see Kevin Dooney actually said it himself. He, didn't, he hasn't PB'd in four years. Surely to God he's doing something mm-hmm. wrong or not doing something right. That He's still in his 20s. Why isn't he PB'd yeah. every year? He should be progress- progressive. Like. Yeah. Mm. And you need to look at Even it. Even if you have to learn and adapt about yourself mm. you know, for four years you have to question what you're doing like, yeah. yeah do you think it, there is a hard fast rule because like, it's through the podcast I've talked to a few people like like Gary O'Hanlon Paul Pollock and things like that and I thought I was getting a sort of picture on sort of marathon training and how they were doing their sort of long endurance and sort of sharpening up close coming to the marathon and so working to progress the fatigue mm-hmm. and doing your long runs on the fatigue and sort of training the second half of the marathon. And then I talked to a, a guy a few weeks ago, Wesley McDowell, who trained with Paul Pollock. He was one of his 12 group. And it was totally different than that sort of picture that I was getting. Mm-hmm. And it was very fast and sharp right from the start. And you were trying to pull that, that distance. Do you think there is like hard and fast rules or do you think people are just people are sort of different and you need to try and find out um, what sort of fits them or is it more so trying to get them to adapt to that model? I think I think there's if you don't have raw speed and let's say I'll, I'll use the 1500 for example if you don't have raw speed then you can't rely on that raw speed in the last lap of a race you have to go and try tire everybody out your speed endurance might be better than everybody else so you need to go from the gun which is really hard in a 1500 meter race because then you're a sitting duck for everybody uh renata canova is did you ever hear renata canova he's probably the most successful coach there's ever been he's an italian coach and if you ask him one question his answer will be about 90 minutes long (laughs) so when i was in kenya there was myself uh, Canova and Sandra who had the European record for the marathon before Mo broke it so 
it was just the three of us and uh, I, I, I was picking his brain all day it was just the three of us in one hotel That's we'd class. have breakfast lunch and dinner together and then just chatting in between just learning you, from him you must love that like so having an open book in front of you isn't it yeah I, I think I, I didn't know what he looked like and I heard someone saying uh, it was uh, Ernie Gabius who had the uh, he ran a 207 marathon he's from Germany he's a doctor as well so uh, he was like oh this is uh, this is Renata and I was like Canova and he goes yeah <laughs> you're Canova and it was one of the only people that I actually got excited about because like oh my god he's in front of me and I'm in the same hotel as him oh my god so he all those questions or his answers went on for way too long I was like oh no I don't want to answer this I don't want the answer to this question I'd rather go to bed uh, so he he said a quote that um, the Kenyan's mentality is to run at the right pace but the European mentality is to run the right distance so if you want to do a marathon it's like if it, if you met a person who is running a year you could probably get them to do a marathon within a year because they can just go out and run mm-hmm. so to run at Kipchoge's pace 201 you're not going to be able to do that in a year it took him 10 attempts yeah. to get to that world record time so I think we, we have we have this notion that we just need to run hard all the time or run mediumly hard all the time so if you were to do uh, an easy run what what pace would you go out on? a minute slower maybe then marathon pace yeah so uh, do you work in kilometres or miles? Uh, miles okay so it, the Kenyan's easy run is in and around 9 minute pace mm. now these are people who can do a marathon at 440 pace and I was so frustrated. I was like, what are, what are you doing? Like, what, why are you going this slow? And I couldn't run that slow because I didn't do anything hard the day beforehand to warrant me going that slow. I was like, oh, good luck, I'm going. Because it feels like, if, you're not, if you feel like you're not working, you feel like you're not benefiting. What's the which point? Which is wrong. Yeah. Like, yeah. In the book, Running with the Kenyans, it mentions that as well. Mm. And it was totally like, you know, these guys are not running marathon pace. You know, the majority of their running is easy running, but they're doing a lot of, run- they're doing a lot of runs. When they go fast, they go ridiculously fast. Yeah, that's the difference, like, yeah. isn't it? So the one one session would be, it's 12k worth of work. So it's 1k marathon pace, 1k half marathon pace. And it's it there's no rest between, it's just 12k of alternating k's. So it's 1k at 3 minute pace, 3 minute per kilometre pace. And then their next k is their easy k, which is 330. And this is all on rolling hills on dirt roads, mm-hmm. and I, I was I I think they covered nine miles in something like was it forty seven minutes, and I was like, oh my god! So I knew I couldn't keep up with one of their reps. I was just like, <laughs> so I I wasn't I didn't want to run with their easy runs, and then I couldn't keep up with their hard runs, so. I was looking at it going why is running at this pace and they're like for easy pace like because we're going to kill ourselves in the session tomorrow so we have to be recovered if we go at four minute kilometre pace today we're going to be too tired to do the work that actually matters where in Ireland people's easy run is six or seven minutes per mile Mm -hmm. why why 
if you run at seven minute pace or nine minute pace, it's the same system you're working. You're not going to improve more by doing seven minute Because it's just active recovery, isn't it? Really, your easy pace. Yeah. You know, so... And they don't do... They don't train th- uh, three times a day. A lot of people think they train three times a day. They don't at all. It's maybe one and a half times a day. <laughs> <laughs> they do a three or four mile trot and it's it's just to wake the legs up in the morning. Uh, and then their hard run is in the evening. There was one session, actually, he has the world record for the uh, steeplechase. His Kenyan name is Stephen Chirona, but his Qatarian name is uh, Shaheen. Saeed, Saeed Shaheen, I think is his full name. So he was one of the first people that transferred over to run for a different country. And uh, if I told you how much he got, it, it makes sense. To, and this is, comes back to the economic reason as well. Mm. He got a million euro for changing over to Qatar, and then a million euro every every year until he dies. Jeez. Now, well, if you're looking after a family and you, yeah. you you come from a, a childhood of poverty, you're gonna be like, okay, yeah, my name's Shaheen now. It's so, good to hear those sort of figures though coming into the sport. I know Qatar. Like yeah. obviously they've just ridiculous money. You know yeah. what I mean? The guys have got a million pounds for the number plate. <laughs> you know there, it's just madness. Like, but we like running is a sport that struggles to get money sort of injected into it to sort of attract people. I think like I don't know if the Dublin Marathon's like twelve grand or something. I don't know, but for the win, you know. Yeah. But you know, it's really. But you look at our athletics. That's a real struggle for people. Like we have some really good. It's better now, obviously, with a lot more sponsorship coming in and things like that. Like, But there's some people, especially maybe 30, 40 years ago or 30 years ago, mm. but there was nothing in athletics really to hold people there. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So it's good to hear, sort of. I know that's a different money. level, obviously, like, but money is starting to s- slowly creep into the sport. And when you talk, you know, you talk relation with footballers, like, you know, when you've people got like 250 grand a week. Mm. Like Aaron Ramsey, like. Yeah, you wouldn't even call him uh, like uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't have him in your starting eleven, <laughs> and he's getting four hundred thousand a week for Juventus next season. That's just nonsense, like isn't it? Four hundred pounds as well. Four hundred thousand pounds a week. And that's I had this conversation before, and when Kipchoge, like when you look at the athlete that man is, mm. you know, to get yourself into that condition, there's nobody in the planet like that, and like. The money that he's getting in relation to footballers, like it's just crazy. Yeah, isn't it four hundred thousand a week for a team sport? It's madness. <laughs> so, talking about money in Kenya as well. So Kipchoge lives in a hut. If it's pretty much a hut, and he'd be washing toilets and he'd be washing the floors and everything. It's very humble. It's very monkish. Like it's it's ju- it's just a group of people from an agency that uh, live and train together during the weekdays, and on the weekends he goes back to his mansion. And it, I was talking to what um one of the Kenyans, his name, Jairus Birich, he's a steeplechaser, and he, he he drives in in a Range Rover Sport, and I was like, what are you doing living here? And he goes, see that guy over there? And I went, yeah. And he goes, he's 18. And I went, okay. And? And he goes, so if I go back to my mansion and live in my mansion, I know he's more hungrier than me because 
I get I get to go back and relax in my mansion. This is work. I'm here Monday to Friday to work, and I go back to my family uh, at the weekends. And it it's like corrugated it's roof level. type. It's uh, that's what I was living in. It was a hut with a corrugated roof. That's just metal, isn't it? Yeah, it's it was it was. It must be metal. like. I was gonna say a cu- culture shock is not the right word, like, but when you no, it was a culture shock. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> culture shock is yeah. the right word. You know, because you're not expecting any of this, and you're seeing this, like, and you're seeing the other side of it. Mm. Um, like, what a great experience that is. You know, there's so there's not that too many people get to experience that side of it. You know. Yeah, like the first night I got there, I was there thinking to myself, "What am I doing here?" Now I was supposed to go. The, I got brought to um. It was with um Zane and Jake Robertson, the the two New Zealand twins. They moved to Kenya when they were seventeen, and they've been there eleven years now, and they've only been back to New Zealand like three or four times. And the two of them are sub sixty minutes for a half marathon. Jeez. There's a few documentaries uh, with them, but uh, yeah, they collected me from the airport and they drove me and said, "Oh, you're staying in a petrol station," and I was like, "Oh my god." <laughs> What does that even mean? Yeah. <laughs> so they try, they, I, we pulled into a petrol station and they're like, right, this is where you're staying. And I was like, really? So we went in behind, it, was, it wasn't even beside the petrol station, it was the petrol station. And uh, the, the owner said, oh, there's no rooms here. And I went, oh my God, this is full. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> what am I, where am I going? <laughs> So um, they brought me to where the camp is that all the athletes stay and I was like, it was pitch dark. There was a slug on the wall the size of my forearm and I didn't know what it was, if it was something that came from somebody or what. I was just looking at it going, what is on my wall? So they did, the bed wasn't even made. People started making my bed and I was like, oh my God, this is my, this is my room for the next three months. Jesus. So... Um, you just kind of... And it was your bed for the next three months, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> I, so I actually, I, I looked up uh, hotels.com and there was a nice-ish, ho- well, in comparison to where yeah. I was staying, it was five-star. And I was like, I'm staying there. And I went down to them and I was like, uh, can I have a room here? And they're like, no, we're booked out. And I went, it doesn't look like it. Like, no, we're booked out. No, 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 fair enough. So I start looking on hotels.com and I was like, they do have a room. So I booked it. And I got the I got the conversion wrong, and th- this bill was going back to New Zealand Athletics, and it, it was costing something like three grand for Jeez. for the uh, for the month, and I was like, I thought it was three hundred euro, and I went, oh my god, they're gonna kill me, oh what am I, what am I after doing? <laughs> so we went down to them, and I was like, um, oh yeah, I booked a room on hotels.com, and they went, no, you didn't, and I went, no, I did. Here's my reservation number. No, 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 there. They're uh, they're corrupt. They're they're gangsters. And I was like, no, they're not. It's a reputable site. Here, I have a room. And they went, no, you don't. No, we don't have a room for you. And I went, <laughs> New Zealand are really gonna kill me now. I don't even have a room for this street. <laughs> I was like, what am I going to do? So I was like, no, I need a room now or refund me. They're like, no, we can't refund you. It's their money. And I went, no, no, no. I was sweating. Yeah. So um. The Bob Tarry is he's um he's a French steeplechaser and he helped me out and he knew the owner of the hotel and they were like no we actually don't have a room. I was like Jesus Christ. So, uh, I got my mom to ring hotel dot com, 
for them to refund me the money and they said they they pay for a room somewhere else for my i don't know hassle yeah. and i was like that's not your fault it's grand though they were putting me in el Doret, which is an hour away and that's not where i needed to yeah. be so I was like it's grand it's not your fault it's their fault so i don't want any compensation so back to my hut <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, it was it was horrible, but you just get over it, and you you just say right, this is what it is. Like, there's world champions living here. It's all right for me. It's grand. I'll, I'll get over it, and you do. You end up just getting over it. Um. But yeah, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. It was a huge experience. Yeah. And it was brilliant that I I got to see and live with the athletes that. If I was in the hotel, I, I ended up, my second time going over, I did end up going into that hotel, and that's where I was with Canova. But I was, it was good that I got to see w- w- where they live and yeah. what they have to do to be where they where they are. Breaking world Can you remember the very first time that you did that? And like, so you've never really been exposed to all these world-class athletes, and the first time you were sort of joining the group. So... I suppose it comes back to the Argon project. Yeah. Um, was that the, that was the real the really the first sort of opportunity yeah. on that scene, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Th- so, so how was that like? You know, because you come from here. Going to the Nike World headquarters and yeah, the, like the Nike World headquarters is it's bigger than the village in Ireland. It has two lakes in it, Jeez. and it's just. It's it's mental. There's a, a wood chip trail around the whole thing, and I think it's about maybe three and a half miles around the whole block. Jeez. So um, yeah, I went down early morning and uh, I got an email from Alberto saying, "Do you want to go run with them? Because it, it's only an easy run." And I went, "Yeah, fair enough." So I went down, and met them at the world headquarters, and uh, my first run was running. Who was there? Who was there? Yeah, who was there? Just uh, so when I went there, it was uh, Galen Rupp, Mo Farah, uh, Matt Centrowitz, um, who have all won mm. gold medals or silver medals at the Olympics. And uh, then there was the Bowerman Track Club, which has Evan Yeager and a few other main people. And the two people, the two groups, don't talk to each other. So I, I was there running. I thought it was an easy run. And I'm like, <laughs> what is going on here? And I looked down at my watch, and it was five forty. I was like, this is an easy run. What the hell is going on here? So, yeah, I was struggling to hold on to them. I was like, ah. Um, the novelty of seeing uh, an Olympic champion wears off pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just another person that you're working with. They have an injury and you have to get rid of the injury. Or they have an imbalance that you have to give strength and conditioning to. And it's just another human in front of you that you have to fix. So... Well, people, I, I, I haven't went away since 2016, and people are like, oh, Jesus, it must be really different. No, it's just another human in front of me that I have to fix. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. But I'm saying that because of hindsight, that I have worked with them, yeah. and if I didn't work with them, I'd be there thinking, how can I work with them? But you do get that in experience in sport, like, and even some of the people like podcasts that, that are in the top, sort of fleeting marathons like Olympia marathoners etc but they're just ordinary people yeah. you know when you're sitting with them it's like like why well, I'm going to go down and talk to this guy <laughs> you're sitting and talking to him it's just like 
mean, you say to anybody. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? They don't see themselves that way in any way or form. You Few know? of them do, but yes. the majority don't. <laughs> so, like, we, we were doing a what? There was a track session that they were doing. Actually, it wasn't a track session. It was a session, but it wasn't on the track. So before their warm up, they were playing heads and volleys. <laughs> <laughs> so this is like Mo Farrell, Galen Rupp, and Matt Centrowitz, and they were all playing. The the four of us were playing heads and volleys. And you just kind of forget that you're kicking a ball at Mo, or like it's just, it was just That's you just forget that. about it. So the session was um ten two hundreds on the grass, with a two hundred meter jog recovery in thirty seconds. Which for them would be it it'd be pretty easy to do thirty seconds and it was grass it was like the most perfect manicured grass, uh and then they went to a four percent gradient hill, and then you'd add about four seconds on for the same effort so they're doing the hill reps, uh ten two hundred meters in thirty four seconds. So, yeah that 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 was their session twenty two hundreds. With heads and volleys. <laughs> um and yeah, you just kind of get used to it. Like there was, there was, what I'm trying to think of something that you would be thinking, Jesus, this is really like what? H- how did I end up here? But yeah. I don't know. Did you just? just you already said about four or five things, by the way. That I thought. <laughs> how the hell did you end, end up there? Like. <laughs> I suppose Monaco actually that was that was a bit mad. Um, you're in a nightclub, but it was the time ter- uh, Gonzebi de Baba broke the women's fifteen hundred meter record, and um, we're in a nightclub in Monaco, and you just you're like, oh yeah, well done, your world record. It was, I didn't really think about it. It was just like, oh yeah, fair play to you. <laughs> um, Brilliant. So you mentioned earlier on there about um, cystic fibrosis yeah. CF as it's well known as so um, you were diagnosed pretty young tell me a bit about cystic fibrosis and actually what it is it's the most common genetic disorder in the world um, so both parents have to have the gene for the child to have CF so if the two parents have the gene then it's a one in four chance that the child will have CF and I'm there's four kids in my family and I'm one of them, so it's one in four for our family. Wow. So my my sister and two brothers have the gene as well, but you have to have two gene, t- the two yeah. things to make CF. Um, so, yeah, it's the most common genetic disorder in the world. Ireland has the highest rate in the world and one of the l- lowest life expectancies, which is 32. Wow, what age you know? 32. <laughs> How does that make you feel then? You know, uh, Like an old age pension. <laughs> People are living a lot longer with it, aren't they? Technology yeah. that we have today. Uh, yeah, the advancements in medication mm. and everything. So if you look at um, up north, Northern Ireland, so they, their life expectancy is 36 for people with CF. So if I drove 90 minutes up north, uh, and grew up with that system of the NHS, then I could live four years longer, which is completely mad. Sweden is close to 60 life expectancy. So it's nearly double mm. Ireland. So I know you've taken like a sort of holistic approach towards yeah. that. Um, I've sort of mentioned it before, 
I put a post up on earlier on about in Facebook actually, and over the last twenty four months, I'd struggled really badly with chronic fatigue and sort of mm. tension. But it was about six months ago, maybe I sort of went towards a holistic approach towards that. I went to see a holistic dentist of all things. Oh yeah, I've heard of him. And um, but it, he was very much you know brought a holistic approach to me, and it was about not looking at one thing, looking at everything, and yeah. how that sort of gets balanced back into your body. Yeah. And I was seeing him because I was taking the, all my amalgam fillings out of my mouth <coughs> and on his advice and just to get the mercury out of the body. Mm-hmm. And so, tell me what holistic means to you first. Because people have this. When I mentioned to people I was going to see a holistic dentist, they sort of laughed, poked, and yeah, thought, yeah. Oh, you're going to see. It was the first thing that cured me. You know, after 18 months of it like it was the first time I was on track actually this mm. is now in my control I just need to be disciplined with that now I've got a good self-awareness on how my body reacts to sort of things um, stresses and impacts but when I mentioned it to people that they just have you're no hippie yeah. yeah so the the founding father of medicine <clears throat> his quote was let medicine be thy food and let food be thy medicine and you grew like I suppose they grew up with if I don't know if you're feeling stress, smell lavender or something, like yeah. go go on a walk or just relax. Not as simple as that, but you get me just. So, where did it become that? That's all witchcraft now, mm. and it's all hocus pocus. Where like penicillin comes from a tree. So how did how did a, a, a penicillin coming from a tree then it comes in a tablet form? Now, everything that it comes from is all witchcraft. Mm. So I, I think <coughs> you have to look, for holistic, you have to look at the whole picture. So if you have, um, if you have let's say, eczema, and the, if you go to a um, dermatologist, or you go to someone who, has, who would, you go to your GP first, and they'll give you a steroid cream or Silcox base or aqueous and you rub it on it. But eczema usually comes, the internal version of it is asthma. So if you have eczema, you probably have asthma as well. Mm-hmm. So then treating your skin as an organ, and if something shows up in your skin, it's the last place that if something's wrong inside, it's going to show on the outside. So you have to treat the inside to treat the outside. Yeah. So you treat whatever is going on inside to treat the eczema so it's yeah i, I can talk for that as well because i struggle really badly with eczema Do you have asthma? Uh, and i used to have asthma when i was yeah. younger but i grew out of that and the doctors tried to treat the symptoms from the outside but they were never getting to the recalls of what that misbalance was mm. and they took it to an extreme that they were giving me thalidomide believe it or not and I didn't know because doctors know everything. Do you yeah. know what I mean? At that stage, I was going to the doctors, was putting wet bandages on my legs, taking thalidomide, putting steroid creams on. The thalidomide was to numb my nervous system to stop me scratching. And then I went to a place called Pharma Health on, Liz- on Lisbon Road in Belfast, which is more of a holistic approach. It was Jan de Vries's practice. Mm. And they were horrified on you know what the NHS was doing. Yeah. And I, I was struggling with that for about three or four years. My legs were flaming up from the steroid cream and mm. you know, I couldn't put shoes on and things. I'd say about six weeks later it was gone. 
and they treated. They just could take me off all of the steroid creams, stop taking everything. Yeah. And they, I can't remember what the ointment was. I had to take a couple of drops off every single day. And I did come off dairy first. Yeah. There was dairy, pork, and um, tomato-based sort of products. Mm. And then I was able to bring them back. Yeah. I was able to bring them all back, actually. But it was actually a lot of, a lot of the symptoms that I had were actually coming from the things that they were giving me to try and cure it. If you, the GP, the GP gets most of their information or studies <coughs> from medical reps. So the medical rep will come in and say, this works for this, but that study was probably funded by that medicine that was, yeah. they were trying to do, or trying to sell. Uh, it's, it's, it's really as simple as that though in my mind because you were saying when did it become this you know this natural sort of holistic approach How, when did this become this sort of medieval sort of witch doctor yeah. sort of mentality it's because they're not making money out of that you know yeah. and there's so much money made out of the pharmaceutical sort of world it's a multi-billion pound sort of industry like and if you look at America anytime I travel over in America and you turn the TV on it's just advert after advert if you're suffering from low tea yeah. like, what's low tea yeah they're telling you what, and they're just brain <laughs> you know if you can't sleep at night then do this or if you can't do this and you can't do that and they're just yeah. implanting stuff into you take this yeah. and over there there's a culture they're going into the doctor and say I want this do you know 4 million dogs in America are on antidepressants <laughs> The population of Ireland. You are dogs. joking me. Like, bring your dog on a walk. Like, how how depressed can you get from a dog? Like, so tell me how cystic fibrosis sort of affects you, and how that sort of holistic approach sort of has helped you along your way to where you are now. Because at such a young age, then if you start from that perspective, and when you were going through school, like I'm sure you were very much aware, you know how difficult that was. Haven't seen it. Yeah. Because it affects people in so many different ways, doesn't it? So Yeah, um, but I suppose because I was born with it, I, it's not mm. something that was put upon me when I was 10 that my whole life had to change. My whole life was waking up in the morning, doing therapy for half an hour, as in my parents would have done therapy, that's clapping on my back, for half an hour to an hour. And that's just to loosen the mucus down off your lungs, yeah. is it? So they use an analogy of a ketchup bottle. So if you have the, not the squeezy ketchup bottle, the, the glass ones, <laughs> and you're trying to dislodge the ketchup from the side of the wall of the glass for it to come out. So that's the analogy that was given to me. So the tapping on your back or sides or front was to dislodge the mucus. And my mum my and dad worked obsessively to make me have a normal life. And like... I was given a life expectancy of 10 and I suppose they, they were like right well if it if it is 10 it's going to be the best 10 years of his life or we're going to try and make that mm-hmm. the best years to, to have a normal childhood so they worked obsessively and relentlessly it was therapy 5-6 times a day more if needed and my dad would come back from work and he'd turn me upside down and run up the hall to let gravity try pull the mucus out of my lungs as well so everything was made fun. I just thought I was getting yeah. thrown over my dad's shoulder and we'd be running up and down. It was, it was good fun. Or playing football in the hall. It was all exercise-based rather than uh, sit there and blow into an instrument, which is tedious and it's not fun. Mm-hmm. So everything was made fun. I remember 
the, the couch is put at the window and I'd be looking out the window and my mum would be clapping on my back and it, it's very therapeutic like I love when someone starts clapping me on my back or my front it's just I, I suppose comforting yeah so everything go out and play in the rain if it's raining just play in the rain and come in and get changed like our skin is pretty waterproof why did why do people think going out into the rain you're gonna get sick <laughs> <laughs> like, what what happens in the rain that you're gonna get sick I'm not, I'm not too sure so if I, I remember my mum we, we went to the shopping centre to get a new pair of runners and she goes get these as mucky as you want uh, because right. I thought they were to go running it so I went, okay so I put them on went out into the field and got them the first day I got them I was like I'm gonna get these as mucky as possible she told me to do it I came back and she goes what happened to your new runners and I was like you told me to oh my god <laughs> so yeah um, it was everything was made fun and it was never I had to run because of CF it, yeah. that never came into it I, ne- I didn't want anybody knowing that I had CF it was it was an embarrassment I didn't want people to see me taking digestive enzymes every time I ate so every time let's say if I was out uh, at my cousin's or something like that I was like a ninja with my with my enzymes it was it was like straight into my mouth nobody saw and even even today nobody really sees me taking it was just bang and then drink so yeah I just didn't want anybody knowing because your, your body struggles doesn't it through CF to try and sort of draw out the nutrients and yeah I don't produce digestive enzymes so anytime yeah. I do eat it's like a foreign substance in my stomach so um, I have to take digestive enzymes to break down fat break down carbs protein and then to absorb them as well um, and fat soluble vitamins is one of the things that the body, my body really struggles with so vitamin A, D, E and K um, so sometimes I would have to take supplements but if I wasn't running as much I wouldn't need them uh, it's just that I am running as much so I'm just trying to get vitamins from everywhere or like just nutrients from everywhere yeah. and do you find then that like for me for the holistic sort of perspective and like I went to see doctors went for MRI scans all this good stuff mm. I feel like going back and telling them <laughs> you know they give me sheets of paper things to do or whatever and it just misses so many different things on that mm. do you find in medicine like cystic fibrosis because obviously being in the outdoors and being active and especially through running and sport like your lungs are just organs do or sorry mm muscles when we are exercising them you're building them to strengthen those yeah like that surely has to be help helping that condition yeah hugely but the physios i haven't seen a physio for my cf um for i can't actually remember last time but they told me to not run as much mm-hmm. i said hey, i'm not going to do that um and like i kind of asked them if if i didn't run, like, if I haven't been in here and the last time I was with them before that was 12 years ago so I said to them would you not be asking me why I'm not in here rather than telling me to to do something that's a failed system and they went what do you mean and I was like well how many people do you tell to do what you're supposed the leaflet tells you to do end up in hospital and they kind of just looked at me and I was a bit annoyed at the time because yeah. I was like, this, is, this is ridiculous so I just went, oh, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm sorry for wasting your time, but I'm not going to listen to you. 
and I went into the dietitian then, and the dietitian said if you had the the choice to eat a Mars bar or an orange, you eat the Mars bar. And I just I kind of just looked at her and went, oh my god, what are you doing? I was like, well, what? I'm not going to listen to you, but why are you telling me to eat a Mars bar? She's like, well, you have to eat for when you get sick. And I went, for when I get sick? And she goes, yeah. And I was like, shouldn't I eat to prevent getting sick? Oh, she goes, dear. well, you have CF. And I was like, I'm quite aware of that. <laughs> so I was like, right, um, I'm not going to listen to you, so good luck. It's crazy though, isn't it? There's so much false information. Even what I just saw being through an holistic approach, I almost feel like, you know, opening something up and trying to help guide people that have sort of like tension and fatigue and anxiety because it's really understanding your body and being able to listen to that. Mm. And sort of, because the environment that we sort of live in today goes against what your body really wants. Do you know what I mean? Because there's so many stresses on your body. Yeah. And, but people just aren't aware there of that and the awareness isn't really out there. Mm. And I think the reason behind it is because people can't make money on it. I think there's so much misinformation on that. And they just don't want to hear really that you can sort of correct this through a natural approach. I think as well, it's harder to, if you have tension headaches, it's harder for you to put away your phone, put away all technology and meditate. Uh, it's easier for you just to take Panadol and it goes away. But you're not treating the underlying cause of it. Yeah. So there's a there's I started to eat more like um do you ever hear of an alkaline diet? So there's alkaline and acidic diets and like a ham and cheese sandwich is an Irish lunch staple. <laughs> it's one hundred percent acidic and bacteria and infections thrive in acidic environments. So if you have a more alkaline body, then things like inflammation or bacteria infection can't thrive. Yeah. So I started to eat more alkaline to make my body more alkaline. Have you ever heard of Wim Hof? Yeah. So, so that's kind of the same yeah. thing. Yeah. So I, I do actually do that. And I find that has really substantially helped me. And just having, like I do the breathing exercise in the morning. Mm. After. Did you find when you started doing it that you, you were yawning more at the start? Um, not really, no. I was yawning all day. I was trying to treat people and I was like... <sighs> but you know, you know, I would, every morning I take a hot Epsom salt bath mm. and I do 10 minutes of mindfulness in the bath and I finish it with these like 20 deep breaths. In cold water. And my family's going past going, what is he doing in the bathroom? That just sounds like crazy shit. Like, yeah. And I then take a cold water shower for a minute and that realkalines the blood and draws a lot of toxins out as well mm. and when I started doing that I felt a physical change straight away I remember the first time I'd done the breath and I started the watch and it was yeah. like 3 minutes 17 seconds and I was like what? Yeah. I was looking at my watch going 2 minutes and I don't even feel like taking a breath have I have I taken a sneaky breath there? Yeah. <laughs> but it's because you're oxygenating your body so much it feels like your skin is taking in the oxygen it's yeah I remember one run, it was a it was a 23 mile run and uh, I was looking at my watch and I was like, oh my God, when is this going to end? I was like, I, I have about three minutes left. I was like, sure, I held my breath for this. <laughs> yeah. I'm definitely going to be able to do this. So I was like, grand. <laughs> Did you ever try to do the Wim Hof method when you're running? No, I haven't. I probably I... wouldn't advise that. I did. I did. It's, not that, it's, not, it's not fun. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> Um, but it does give you a lot more energy, obviously, you know, when you mm. do that in the morning time. And 
and it's like everything in life when life's so busy we've sort of come accustomed to doing enough just to get by yeah do you know what I mean and, and our breathing mm-hmm. sort of is the same as that as well and the breath can just change your state of body and state of mind like I read a book um, he's probably the one person you would think that wouldn't uh, be into the kind of Buddhist way of life or he, so he's basically he created rap and hip hop and you think he's like wearing gold chains and all this sort of stuff he's vegan and he meditates so he has a book I think it's called How to Be Rich or something like that and I, th- I bought it when I was a, I bought it when I was a teenager thinking oh yeah I'm going to be rich I'll just read this and it's going to be a blueprint to how to get rich brilliant but it wasn't I was reading it going what is he on about but it was about how to make your I suppose your body rich rather than yeah. material. How to be rich in life, really, isn't yeah. it? So he said, uh, if you don't have enough time to meditate for 10 minutes a day, you need to meditate for 20 minutes a day. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I would meditate a lot as well. It's like the, I think it was Dalai Lama said, you know, when like he meditates for half an hour a day, but if he's got a busy day, he'll meditate for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> Just to prepare himself for it. It's very similar to sort of that. So yeah. Has sport always been there with you then? Yeah, um, since since day one. I think my first race, I'd say, it was down in a place called Ballymoney in Gorey in Wexford. And uh, my parents had a holiday home down there, so it was like, I, it, there was activities for the children. We it, There was run till you drop. And I was running against my brothers who would have been six years older than me. And all their friends, and I was like, oh, I have to beat these. So I just kept on running and running. The first last man standing by the sounds of Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. So the organisers, like the, the, the people who organised it, they were like, here, Evan, you have to stop, we need to go home. <laughs> so they went home, and that was the first, I can remember running around that going, I, I can't get tired. And I don't, I can't really remember much of my childhood, like, r- like real details. Yeah. I don't know why, but I remember... I remember that race or run. That's pretty phenomenal though with CF and how that would affect your breathing and things like that, isn't it? Well, do you think that everything that you were doing was sort of... Helping me. Helping you or other people just aren't aware and they weren't trying to improve that. So you were trying to get the best possible condition at that sort of stage. I think my parents were aware of it. Yeah. I think they, they knew that if, if the mucus isn't in my lungs, it's going to be... Well, if it's out, it's better. So I, I, didn't, I didn't see it like that. I just wanted to be the best. I just yeah. wanted to beat everybody. I'm hugely competitive. Um, so I went in, I was playing football, as a soccer. Uh, I was playing rugby and swimming. And I remember I went into gymnastics. I just, I, I just said, Mom, can I have money to go to gymnastics? I think it was like a pound at the time to go down. So I went down and she didn't even bring me. I just walked down and went in, we're doing tumbles and everything. I was like, so when can I backflip? And they went, well, you need to front flip first. And I was like, well, I can do that. And they went, well, now you have to do these tumbles. And I was like, oh, I'm not coming back here. <laughs> Holes on me back. <laughs> There's Chinese people winning Olympic medals at this stage. <laughs> so, yeah, I, do, I, do, I didn't do gymnastics. Um, so, yeah, I started doing that. And I think because there was 10 other people on my team on the football team, uh, and they were doing stupid mistakes. I was like, oh, "What are you? Why did you pass like that?" And I think that I I could control what I could do in running because it was an individual sport. Yeah. Um, 
and it just I could run all day. It wasn't a, it wasn't a problem. I could just run and run and run. The longer the better. Um. So I think, I think, there's a, a misconception out there that people would see if have a lowered immune system or, uh, that running is bad. Like the amount of times people have said to me, "Oh, you need to give up the smokes." Like I'd do a really hard session or something, and I'd be out in the Phoenix Park or something, and I'd be beside my car and I'm coughing. And like people are like, oh, you need to give up the cigarettes. I'm like, oh, here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just my body just getting the mucus yeah. out. And it's it's as simple as that. You're just running to get the mucus out. And if it's not there, then like mucus is a perfect breeding ground for infection. And if it's not there, well, then it's all right. So when you're running, though, how does that affect you? Because I remember one time running the Dublin Marathon, it was about three or four years ago. Mm. I had... Um, got exercise induced bronchitis yeah and because that's sort of when I looked up about CF I was sort of thinking to myself mucus in the lung that's exactly what was happening with me and when I um, when I was running the marathon I was doing my best not to cough because I knew if I started you know the marathon could be over so yeah <laughs> little sneaky little coughs every night <laughs> don't happen don't happen like you know posh cough and it, and it turned out that it was after 10 months I worked out it was bloody putting towels on the radiators created that believe oh, it or not because yeah, yeah. we had a in our bedroom window with the latch had actually broken and that was actually the root cause of that it's a huge damp environment yeah, yeah but it was it was a difficult time though you know trying to run mm. with that like is it like that all the time with you or are you no if um the year i ran the marathon 2017 four days later i have a video i've posted a video of my youtube channel about the graphic side of my cf so i didn't run for that four days because i I ran a marathon, I was like, I'm taking a break. And it was as if I had the flu. Like, there was just mucus, it was just building up and building up. I was like, I have to make a video of this, because I think when, if people follow me on Facebook or something like that, and they see that I'm just running, like, 20 miles, or last Saturday was 22 miles, and they probably just look and go, oh, he's, he's the lucky one, or he... Yeah. Like he doesn't have a mild or he doesn't have a severe form. I have the most severe form of CF. But I think they'd look at it and go, Oh yeah, well he can do that because he doesn't he has a mild form. And it, that frustrates me as well because it kind of makes it as if I'm not working as hard. So like, I'm gonna make a video of this to show you after four days of not running what actually happens. And you can see me at the side of my bed coughing up mucus and like it's, it's a horrible, even when I was editing it, I'm yeah. like, this is horrible, do I really need to post this? <laughs> and like I had the mic to my mouth and like to get the the real sound of trying to clear the mucus. And I was like, this is going, if my family see this, they're going to be, it's going to be hard viewing for them. But it, it, I, I made it so people can see what actually happens with CF and with me, with my CF, rather than... I think it's important though to tell the true story, because that's what makes it really inspirational. Do you know what I mean? And I know you're not out there to try and be this super inspirational person, but if you're struggling with something like that, mm. you want people to know where it's at. Because if you can do that, then the people that aren't as even as bad as that, well then Jesus, maybe I can do that. You know? And that was the that was the reason why I set up the page. I up until I left school I didn't want I remember writing a blog and it was titled, um, what was the title actually? Uh, I have CF. 
<laughs> That's what it was. And uh, it was um, it was in around the time where Vincent's hospital and uh, was trying to be the the CF unit was trying to get awareness for it. And every ad you'd see, every article you'd see, would be people with uh, oxygen on their face, and I was like, this this is horrible. There's no there's no good story out there for people whose child just got diagnosed. If you Google CF and Google image it, it's horrible. There's black lungs and it's it's not good to see it. Yeah. And I was like, I need to... I think the subtitle was, it's not all doom and gloom. A little bit of light in the darkness, really, yeah. I suppose. Because it, if, like my parents getting the, the diagnosis of, I won't make 10, mm-hmm. so they were going to try everything to make me have the best life possible so i don't i don't know where they got the idea from that <laughs> well it is possible they just had hope i suppose so i wanted because the age we live in you can see everything any sort of disorder dr google is out there so i just said right i'm gonna have to bite the bullet and I'll, if people know they know they probably already know but it is what it is if it gives someone hope that I, at the time I was running for Ireland, well then, yeah, that's grand. If he can do it, well then my child can be there as well. And that was the reason why I started doing it. And when I, even when I created the Facebook page, I was like, this is really egotistical. Like, why am I making a page for myself? Like, this is ridiculous. But I I suppose I kind of just said, right, if parents want to see someone who's living a normal life, with CF, well then, so be it. And that was the reason for the Facebook page, rather than wanting to be... It is important, though. It can, it can feel very isolated as well, can't it? Uh, yeah, because we're, we're not allowed to come in contact with each other as well. So uh, yeah. we're not allowed... I'm not allowed to be within six feet of uh, another person with CF, but I wouldn't even be in the same room or even in the same hall as someone with CF. And because it's cross-infection. So I, rem- I, I was doing a talk to someone in the, one of the running clubs and I was sitting down afterwards and this fella comes up to me and he tells me his name and he was like yeah he was talking about CF and I was like do you know Sarah Tracy she's no, um, she runs for Ireland she was at the Olympics um, with Kerry Hardy in the steeplechase okay. so um, she, her brother has CF and his name's Philip Tracy and the person sitting next to me was Philip Tracy and he shakes my hand and I was like, I was in a sweat. I was like, <laughs> oh my God, what the hell? And I was like, do you have CF? And he goes, no. And I went, oh my God, thank Christ. And he was just looking at me. He was like, I was about to punch you in the face. And he goes like, what? And I went, wait, hold on for a second. <laughs> I, I should back this up with, I thought there was someone beside me with CF. <laughs> and he was like, all oh, right, okay. So yeah, we're not supposed to come in contact with each other because of cross-infection. That makes it difficult as well, but I suppose the modern day technology and things yeah. like that is sort of... Mm. Like if you have diabetes, if you have, I don't know, scoliosis or, I don't know, multiple sclerosis, whatever it is, you can have a support group and you can meet them and talk to people face to face where CF doesn't have that. It's all... Yeah, that's hard, like, that could, could be hard, like, so I suppose sport has helped a big, a big part of that, because sport's an amazing community and support group, like, isn't it? Yeah, it's like a little... It's a little village. It's a train going by, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't know what it was. Um, yeah, like 
the, the, my alarm went off in the house while we were away and the, the, the person who I said could you check on the house I didn't even like I'd see her at races but I didn't I don't really know her and I messaged her on Facebook she lives around the corner and I was like can you come around and uh, see if the house is okay like you you wouldn't get that anywhere Like it's yeah. just this you go to a race and you see everybody and you're like you'll have a cup of tea and biscuits at the road races and stuff like that it's it's it, it takes us kind of a weird individual to get into running because it's very isolating but as a, we're a tight-knit community i suppose yeah, yeah. very good 2017 you mentioned there about doing the marathon it was yeah. in dublin yeah um you actually broke the european record for somebody with cystic fibrosis and mm. um, tell me a bit about that because was that something you were targeting to do going into the race? No, I was targeting the world record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a disaster of a marathon. <laughs> um, so I probably should have ran a marathon. I ran 67 minutes for a half marathon. And I probably should have run a marathon Jesus. in around then. But I remember it was, you know, Sergei Chibana. Yeah. I finished second behind him in a half marathon. That's phenomenal, like. Well, the way I saw it is like I'm seven minutes behind Kenyans and I'm doing 120 miles a week. What am I doing? And I was so disheartened. I was like, seven, 67. Like, so what? It's not anywhere near the best in the world. Where now I, I'd like, if I ran 67, I'd be delighted with it. <laughs> so I kind of, I suppose that was in around the same time I was having seizures out in the run and I was like, what am I doing? And that's when I started working with the Kenyans and everybody else. So it was up until 2017 where um, my friend came back from America and he was bringing me out in runs and I was trying to get as big as possible with like weights and I was like deadlifting 120 kilos trying to get huge just because I was like well I have to be competitive at something and maybe twice a week three times a week I'd go out in a run just to keep my lungs clear but other than that I was lifting weights and uh he came back for Christmas and I was like, oh, sure, I'll go out in a few runs with him. And um, my neighbour, Tommy Marr, who ran a 2.16 marathon, um, he said, hey, are you back training? And I was like, no, that's a stupid idea. <laughs> and he was like, all right. So then he goes, I thought you were going to be doing the marathon or something. And I was like, no, that's an even worse idea. And then a few days later, I was like, put the seed in your head. I think I might do this, actually. So it was January of 2017. I was like, okay, I have to get marathon fit, then I have to get marathon race fit. So I did two build-ups from January to the end of April uh, to build up to doing 24 miles mm -hmm. and then take a break and then build up again for uh, Dublin. So up, I, I ran a four-mile race and tore my Achilles in that race and that was the end of July. I was going away to Morocco three days later and I didn't know it was torn, I just thought it was really inflamed. I was like, gosh, I'll be able to run on it. I remember doing a seven mile run out in Morocco and I just looked like I had a wooden leg or something. I was just hopping along. I was like, it'll warm up, it's grand. But it didn't and it was... True runner's mentality there. Yeah, <laughs> it'll warm up. So I ended up doing two and a half hours on the cross trainer with no air conditioning in Moroccan heat. I was like, I have to break this record. I don't care if I have to do two and a half hours. Sure. I have another 21 and a half hours to, yeah, for the rest of the day. It's grand. I'll just commit to that. It's all right. So um, 
I always I was relentless on it. I broke it. I broke a cross trainer. <laughs> the things start making a noise and yeah. So that I I missed seven weeks of yeah. August and September, which is nearly the most important time for the marathon. Uh, and I remember I came back mid September, and I was like, right, if I can do one mile at marathon pace, two days later I'll do two miles at marathon pace, and that's the way I was like, right, it's grand. I'll I'll try do it like that, and I went to do to twelve miles. And I stopped at 11. My quads, they weren't used to the impact on the ground because I was running without impact on the cross trainer. And I I started getting sick at the side of the road. And I wasn't even near marathon pace. I was just running it to try to get the 12 miles done. It's like, what? How am I going to do this? So I went out the week after to do 20 miles with uh, Maria McCambridge, uh, who was at the Olympics. And uh, she, I think, what's her PB for a marathon? Is it 233 or something like that? Something like that. But um, we were doing seven-minute mile pace, and I actually had to tell her to shut up because we were, she just kept talking, and it was it was at mile 18. I was like, Maria, can you just shut up? I'm dying here. <laughs> and she was like, what? I was like, I can't even hear you. My head's just full. Will you shut up? So I finished the run. I was like, sorry about that. I was struggling. I just couldn't bring anything else into my head. So, um, yeah, I, I went into the marathon and I actually, I, I think I had about three weeks to taper and I got really fit. I remember doing one session, it was two by one miles at six minute pace, then a five mile tempo at six, ten pace, then two by one mile at five fifty pace. And I was like, what? Well, I, I actually think I might be coming mm. to the marathon at perfect time. So the first... The first 20 miles kind of felt okay, and I was running six 18s per mile. I was like, this is all right. And apart from mile 13, there was something in my foot that just kind of cramped up a little bit. I was like, okay, that, that didn't feel good. And I, I went through halfway in about, was it 82 minutes? I felt perfect. I, did, I felt all right. But, it, oh, sorry, the week leading up to the marathon, it was on the Thursday I woke up with a really sore throat. I was like, oh, here we go. Friday was worse. Saturday I woke up with the sore throat kind of subsided, but I had a blocked nose. And I was like, <laughs> well, the marathon's tomorrow. Let's see what happens. And I went into it really calm. I said, if I blow up, I blow up. If I don't, well, then I get the world record, which is 247. So I got to 23 miles and going up the UCD flyover. Yeah. I just went to a standstill. I just went bang. My whole body went into cramp. Going on, and I, I just, I just kind of looked at my watch and I went, "Oh God!" And I couldn't run, I couldn't walk, I didn't know what was going on. Had you been on pace for that point? Yeah, up until twenty, I was on for two forty-five at that pace. So, uh, yeah, I just, I just kept running, and I was like, "Oh, this is the wall, I suppose. This is what they talk about." <laughs> so I got to RTE and I rang Yaz, my fiance, and I was like. But she didn't answer, and I rang my mum and told her everything's all right. Then I rang Yaz again, and they were on the tracker looking at me. They were like, what's wrong with him? I dropped to a 12-minute mile. <laughs> I was like, oh, God. So I was like, right, the record's gone. I can finish, because if I don't finish, it's going to take longer for me to wait for someone to collect me to get into town. And I also, with Dunshoplin AC, we meet in a pub afterwards in Dunshoplin and just talk about the marathon, I suppose. And I was like... I can't go to that pub without a medal. 
<laughs> so I have to finish this. Yeah, I can walk. And in around that time, I was passing the hospital that the, the majority of people would see F. Golden. Mm-hmm. And when I was passing the marathon, or that uh, Vincent's hospital, I was thinking, no matter how bad I feel right now, I should be in there. I was like, I if if me finishing it gives someone in there hope that that's enough. So I went, right, I'll finish it. Brilliant. So I couldn't run faster than I got down to a nine thirty minute mile. I was like, oh my god, if I go if I went to nine twenty, I'd go into cramp again. So I finished the marathon. I was like, well, three oh nine. That was that was a disaster. So I just finished and I looked down at my shoes. They were navy. But they were navy starting, but when I finished, they were white. And it was like salt all over my forehead. My uh, shorts turned white. I was like, what the hell? I was like, salt. I can't oh, believe Jesus. it. So CF is a salt regulation problem. Yeah. And I didn't think of this at all. I had everyone at every 20 minutes along the course giving me gels because the, the seizures is because I have hypoglycemia, which is the opposite of diabetes. So I need sugar all the time. I knew that I needed one, a gel, at 20 to 22 minutes. And I had everything perfect, apart from salt. And in around 15 miles, I could taste salt in the back of my throat. And I usually can't taste salt. So if it's a really hot day, I take a teaspoon of salt. And I can't taste it. So I was like, what? why can I taste salt? This is weird. And there was a fella on a bike beside me. And I was going to get him to go in and get me a sachet from McDonald's to... <laughs> to down a bit of salt and I was like ah, that'll be grand I feel alright and I realised when I finished I was like that, that's a rookie mistake yeah. how did I forget I needed salt big time like and I I jeez I, I my muscles everything was so that, sore that's one of the main things isn't it because they, they talk about sort of salty skin with CF like yeah. don't they so one of the before an actual diagnosis it was beware the baby with the salty brow so the doctor would kiss your forehead and if it tasted really salty then it warranted getting the expensive test to see if you had CF or not. Uh, and one of my, the, there's two people I talked to with CF. One is Orla Tinsley who is a huge uh, CF advocate. Um, there was a documentary done and she, she got a lung transplant and she's in America at the moment on a scholarship to do creative writing. And she has a book called The Salty Baby. Uh, and the other girl that I talked to, her name's Helen Wordy, and she's she's down to a three forty marathon. Uh, I coach her. She was she's right. trying to get the Boston qualifying time or New York mar- uh, qualifying time, which I think she could do. She did Berlin and she was at three thirty five up until maybe the last yeah. three or four k, but um, that would have been a ten minute PB. She should be. She was, three, was it three forty for New York? No. Was it? it was yeah but she ran 340 20 oh, right. so she oh, was yeah. so I, it, it's well within her yeah. Um, so yeah I think uh, it was just a rookie mistake I just couldn't believe how how I overlooked it's obvious. <coughs> when you look back it was an obvious rookie mistake yeah. wasn't it yeah. <laughs> screaming at you yeah so yeah I think um, I suppose it was a lesson learned and, mm-hmm. uh, so you talked about the coach in there so you have like um, it's two aspects that you have a Scotty therapy clinic, yeah, um, and you do coaching and strength conditioning. Talk to me a bit about your business structure and what you do now. Um, 
when I came back from working with all the athletes, I got I gained so much experience by seeing what it takes to win an Olympic medal or seeing what it takes to break a world record. And when I came back, I was like, well, I, I, it took me up until, I think it was last year that I only started coaching. Because I, I was there thinking, right, I'm, I do what I do in the clinic and I do strength and conditioning. Um, I think I'm just spreading myself too thin. And I was thinking to myself, well, maybe I can get Irish people to, more Irish people to the Olympics or like I can educate coaches or whatever that from what I've seen from my travels and yeah someone just said um can I will you coach me and I was like uh <laughs> and I was hesitant to do it and I was like oh sure I might as well then so I, yeah I just start coaching and then I suppose when people kind of like why why do you want to be coached by an individual it's either their reputation or it's because you like them and or you you feel that you're I suppose ethics coincide with theirs and you can bounce off each other. There has to be a relationship there. It can't just be, I tell you to do 3 by 5 k at marathon pace. Because if I said that to someone, their marathon pace in their head isn't probably what's realistic. Or if I give them 5k pace, I, I give them the actual time rather than saying 5k pace because they end up going too fast. Like 12 400s a 5k <coughs> pace. People go nearly five seconds faster per 400. <laughs> and I was like, well, why are you doing that? That's not 5K pace, it's 3K pace or 1500 pace. Um, so I think, yeah, I just started saying, yeah, I'll coach now. And turns out I actually really enjoy it. <laughs> Do you get a lot of helping people? Because you think about the clinic and sort of coaching. Um, is that something you really, really enjoy? You think it's important to you? Yeah, I... I kind of, I kind of always want to help people, regardless of what it is. I just have this need to like fix people or help people, or I don't, I don't know what it is. It do, it doesn't seem like it's a burden that I'm doing it. It's it just seems like a natural thing. I mean, like for instance, there was an athlete that I was working with, uh, Tuffik McLeopy is his name. He's a Olympic champion in fifteen hundred, and he has two other Olympic medals in a fifteen hundred and eight hundred. Um, and it was just the two of us for nine months uh, living together and there was one time his agent didn't book the his our flights to go to one of the Diamond Leagues and I was like what, what are you doing you're paying your agent to do this he goes yeah I was like why isn't he doing it give me your credit card so I, I booked it I started booking things from trying to get him into uh, more publicity like magazines trying to get deals from him being his nutritionist like doing everything possible so he could have a stress-free life. That wasn't my job role. My job role was to be his therapist and strength and condition. I started being his pacer as well. Like I was on a bike pacing him around the track. <laughs> and I, looking back, I was like, why was I doing that? <laughs> but it was because I wanted to help him. And whatever I did meant that he would could go on and run as fast as he could. Uh, and that was the reason. It wasn't because of anything else. I just wanted to help him. Is there anything there, some sort of dream ambition out there that you haven't done yet that you would like to do? Work with the Irish team. I've, I've worked with the Kenyan team, New Zealand team, Algerian team. I'd like so many teams I've worked with, or athletes, 
yet I haven't worked with the Irish team which is it's really annoying and <laughs> it's, hopefully it's put really it out. frustrating actually hopefully put it out there what's next on the calendar for yourself then um, racing wise yeah um, I have Boromean half marathon in the, on the 10th of actually no I'm racing on Sunday <laughs> I forgot about that, yeah. That's like two days away, by the way. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so I suppose I'm, I'm doing that. It's just, uh, I'm just kind, kind of running it with a team rather than running it hard. Because tomorrow I have a session to do, which is it's probably going to be about 18 miles. So my warm-up, then I have 2 by 3K, 3 by 2K, and then 5 by 1K. With a warm-up and warm-down, it's probably going to be about 17, 18 miles. Quite a heavy session, like. Yeah, so this is the thing where the Kenyan's mentality is run at the right pace, and the European is to run the right distance. I'm trying to do that at marathon pace, half marathon pace, and ten k pace. So it's not just running eighteen miles; it's running it at a pace with a goal pace. Uh, and then the five k race the next day, but the the half marathon is the tenth of March. And then the 7th of April is the Milan Marathon. Okay, how many marathons have you done? Is this, one. Yeah, so this is your second one. Yeah, yeah. Um, have you ever thought about taking salt? It's your own marathons. Will that be even more complicated with the heat then with Milan, do you think? That is one of the things that I was kind of worried about. Mm-hmm. So what, the reason why I'm doing Milan Marathon is that Under Armour are sponsoring the Milan Marathon. And uh, Under Armour look after me, well, um, hence all the Under Armour gear. Uh, so they asked me what I do the marathon. I was like, okay, fair enough. Brilliant. Um, so it was it was a toss up between Rotterdam or Manchester, and when I was asked to do Milan, I said, okay, well, they don't they don't ask me to do anything and. I think we get wrapped up in, in course profiles and everything where yeah. you should just probably just go and do it and see what happens. So I, I'm not going into it with a huge expectation. I'm just going into it and whatever happens, happens. But I, I ran, like I said, 22 miles last week in under three-hour pace. Okay, perfect. So, and that was up and down hills and mm-hmm. I, wasn't, I wasn't even concentrating on trying to do that. It was just... I ended up doing it at that pace, so I'm already what's the it's only course. another four miles to go. Yeah. Um, and it's a sub three hour marathon, so I'd probably. I, I I actually have no idea. I suppose there's still more training to be done the next five weeks, and then I'll know roughly where I am when it comes to the next five weeks. And then after that, I'll take a break, and. You actually do take a break then. I do, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I do take a break. <laughs> you have to. You can like there's coaches out there that are getting people to do a session on the Wednesday after a marathon. Yeah. What are you doing? So yeah, after that, then the build up to I'm getting married in October. Brilliant. A few days before Dublin, so I'm obviously not doing Dublin, but um, uh, I suppose the wedding is more. Yeah, the honeymoon. The honeymoon down in Dublin marathon. I don't think that was you're gonna get away with that. <laughs> well, no, it's not. Uh, it's not that. It was. I was like, geez, I think I might be able to recover. I was only messing with her. I think I might be able to recover. It's the Thursday before. Oh, it's before it. Yeah, yeah. And she was like, "Are you serious?" And I went, "Yeah." She's like, oh, I thought she was gonna go. You're not doing it after the wedding. Yeah, but when? And 
Angeles. She was like, you're not going to be able to recover. It wasn't the fact that I'm doing a marathon. It was She was looking out to say, Evan, you're not going to be able to do a marathon a few days after the wedding. So yeah, I'll just I'll I'll do a marathon some two thousand twenty or whatever. I, I no, I'm not looking that far. I have my focus is April, and then I'll go back to the drawing board and pick out goal races that I want to do. There. That's brilliant. If somebody's looking to contact you, then just for a bit of advice or coaching or um, how to get hold of you. I suppose on my Facebook page, uh, it's just if you type in Evan Scully, you will come up. Um, my profile picture is a is a black and white photo. I think. Um, in case there's another Evan Scully out there, <laughs> and the bearded one, the bearded one, yeah, <laughs> uh, and then my email address is evan.scully at gmail dot com, and I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Excellent, Evan. Thanks very much. Appreciate your time. Appreciate it. I absolutely love this episode. I think it's everything you'd want from a podcast. Evan is a real ambassador for cystic fibrosis. He lives a very positive and fulfilled life, even though he has more to battle than most. I just loved hearing his stories of working with the elites and wish him all the best in reaching both his goals of supporting the Irish team and breaking the world marathon record for somebody with CF. Before we finish, I'd just like to thank our sponsors, Bondurant, whose last race of the Winter Series was today. Well done to everyone who supported and completed all eight of the races. The next race is in Glenarm Castle on the 13th of April again, so I hope to see you there. Hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Until next week, stay safe and keep on moving.